back, Podlers. With lockdowns and travel bans in place, it seemed like a great time to bring back the podcast. And I'm delighted to have such an entertaining guest to get us back up and running. Kaj Sol has had a storied career in sports media, with a 20-year career at the BBC working on iconic shows like Match of the Day. He is now head of sport at Channel 5, and in the podcast he shares his experiences in the business, as well as some fascinating insights into the topic of diversity in sports broadcasting. Enjoy the pod. Hi Kaj, welcome to the podcast. Hello Danny, how are you? I'm, I'm not too bad, thank you very much, all things considered. Knowing that you're such a big Nottingham Forest fan, <laughs> as I, I as stick I've, the knife in straight away, aren't you? That's yeah. A, well, I've witnessed mm. it uh, firsthand, having seen you get uh, live coverage over club call of uh, a Not- Nottingham Forest League Cup final from America, which was a phone bill that I ended up having to pay. For. <laughs> it seems only fair to to pose a very interesting question. I think it's an interesting question for you which is as a Nottingham Forest fan would you give up one of the European Cups to get Forest back into the Premier League right now? Well first of all thank you for mentioning the phone call because it's been a while since you last mentioned that so you know it was always good to keep that in the forefront of my memory. Would I give up a European Cup for being in the Premier League right now? I would not. Even though Nottingham Forest haven't been in the top division now for 22 years. If we go up now, and which obviously I do want to go up, but if we go up, what sort of experience is it going to be? And it's never going to be anywhere close to winning a European Cup when no one thinks you're going to do it. It's going to be hoping not to get relegated for a year and celebrating staying up in the division. It's going to be hoping to beat... Aston Villa and Sheffield United are not getting hammered by Chelsea and Liverpool. And that is fundamentally different in terms of how that feels, I think, to to achieve something like um, winning not one but two European Cups back-to-back, something that probably won't happen again to a club of the size of Nottingham Forest. So, yeah, it's it's an easy one, that one, for me. Even though it's been 22 years, I I would say, look, we'll we'll, we'll stick with this and, and, and we'll see. Who knows? We might even do it this year. Well, it, it would be a bit of a turnaround. It would um, it would make Lazarus look like a warm up act. I made reference to the, to that uh, long ago phone call. That's when we were sharing a place in America as part of our American studies uh, degree at Manchester. And then you left Manchester and very quickly ended up in BBC Radio. Well, it, it, it took me a couple of years. So when I left, uh, as a lot of people do when they leave university, you're not entirely sure what you wanted to do with life I knew it had to do something with possibly broadcasting or that area and much as it is today it's really difficult to break into especially if you don't know somebody who's already working in the industry as we all know in most industries you know there's a way in through a a father or an uncle or a sister or a friend Um, I didn't really have that so I started out by (laughs) by working on hospital radio at um, the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham and then once one day when I was in, they they was said they said to me, "You quite like football, don't you?" Went, yeah, yeah, I do. And they said, um, "Do you want to go down to Nottingham Forest this weekend and work with a chap who's doing the commentary?" And there were two things for me immediately at that point was was one, I get to go to watch Forest, and two, I don't have to pay. 
because I, was, I wasn't earning much at the time. So I, I leapt at the chance and said yes. And then I saw something in the paper uh, for a three-week, no, sorry, three-month placement with BBC Sport in London. And so I put this application in and I got called in for, for an interview. And I, I didn't actually get the job or, or the placement, but the, the head of sport, then a guy called Mike Lewis and his deputy, Bob Shannon, said to me, look, you haven't got it because you haven't got enough experience, but it strikes us that that's one of the reasons you haven't got it is you can't get any. So why don't you come for a month? So I thought, brilliant. So that's what I did. And that, and that was, and I stayed for 20 years. <laughs> so it's a very long month. I did lots of things in that period. So I did um, I did that programme for, for ages. And then I ended up being a football reporter for a while. So that was interesting as well going back to the city ground now as a reporter for for for, for sports report on on you know on bbc radio five as it was before it became five live um and then i ended up for a long time being one of the football producers which meant that i spent um a lot of time waiting in drafty tunnels for football managers to be really annoyed with me or curmudgeonly uh, after a game but which was a great job when you when you're young and you're, you're single and you like football and you like broadcasting. I was going to, I can't remember how many games a season, but it would have been 80 games a season. You know, So we did that. I did that for a long time and then made the transition from radio into TV. And that meant, you know, a lot of stuff like match of the day, football focus, documentaries, World Cups and other things. Um, so, yeah, it was, quite, it was quite a varied career in terms of in sport. Of the people, the managers that you had to interview in the tunnel uh, after the game, what what was the one where you were really, or the the one consistently who you really didn't want to go and talk to after the game? Was there someone who really stands out as being particularly aggressive? Of that era, most people would probably say Alex Ferguson, but it would depend on if Manchester United won or lost. Now, you're probably thinking that when they lost, he was he, that was when you didn't want to do him. Actually, that was the time you wanted to do him because I think he felt a need to explain it and seemed to be <laughs> inexplicably in a better mood. The truth is you, you never knew what, which manager was capable of doing that. The one obviously who never did it was, was Arsene Wenger. He could, he he could never, get a bit... He never saw anything, though. <laughs> That's true. That's true. There would be a quiet desperation in his voice that he wanted to explain what had gone wrong. So you now have a business called Ten Monkeys that is involved in a number of areas to do with sport. One of those, I would guess one of the most important, is that you have the contract to run Channel 5 Sport. And it'd be really interesting to get a sense of, of what's the brief for Channel 5, the sort of things that you do, and uh, the sort of sports that uh, have ended up becoming important to Channel 5, because things have changed over time there. <coughs> We've been working with Channel 5 for probably three, coming up to four years now. And our role, the role that I have essentially, is to is to manage their sport portfolio. So that begins with um, assessing the sports that they already had when we joined, deciding which ones we would leave, we no longer needed, and then looking for other sports that would fit on a general entertainment channel. And that's that's a really important point because this isn't a dedicated sports channel and sport somehow has to mesh and work within that context so 
we look for new sports rights and then we hopefully get some of them and then we will either make programs ourselves or we will commission them to be made by third parties by other indies so what's important for, for, for channel five is is it's you know quite plain really you want sports that rate you need sports that bring an audience it's not a channel where i think you can afford to build a sport i think you can do that on sky you can do that on bt you certainly can do that on the bbc but it's a very lean organization I and mean, i spent years at the bbc over over 20 years at the bbc so working at channel five is very different and and it has a lot of positives it's a very lean machine and it moves quickly and it can react to things very quickly so that's a good challenge for us in terms of sport is trying to find something to fit. So in the past, I think, uh, you know, we've tried Formula E, we've tried uh, MotoGP has been on the network, we've had a few other things with, you know, uh, World Rally. All of these are perfectly legitimate sports, but some, for instance, like Formula E is a growing sport. That's a great sport for a Sky or for a BT. It's not necessarily a great sport for, for a channel like us because we need to hit the ground running. Great successes for us in the past, I suppose, have been things like the cricket highlights. So domestic cricket highlights of England test one days, T20s during the summer, which we used to play out at seven o'clock, did brilliantly well for us. Highlights generally, is it, you know, generally for a point for, for television stations like uh, Channel 5, I'm not sure what role highlights has anymore because the value in them has gone because of digital. So, And when you we, say digital, is that because of clips that are yeah. now so readily available. Yeah, and so it's a different it's a different world, isn't it? So when we did uh, the EFL and the championship in particular, which we used to run at nine o'clock on, on, a, on a Saturday night, I think most fans generally, the first thing you're interested in is your own game. There was a time where you had to tune in at nine o'clock to see those goals. But as soon as the digital, digital rights were made available, available, you know, they were out one minute after kickoff. After, after final whistle, rather. So most people had seen their goals or seen their action by the time that the programme came on. So, so the value of highlights isn't what it used to be. With cricket, it was different because quite often at seven o'clock, um, the game was still going on while we were cutting that show. You know, sometimes, it, you know, the day's play could go to 7.30 and we were still on air with the first bit of the show. So it had a lot more value uh, because it was so current. So that did really well for us. And hopefully one day we can, we can see that come back because it was on Channel 5 for about 15 years. Um, and that moved, was, that obviously moved. Yeah. And was that just a straightforward bidding thing that, uh, you know, ultimately you couldn't match what was out there and, as an alternative? Uh, I think partly. I think it was wider than that in, in terms of what the ECB wanted for cricket and tied into that was the, the 100. Channel 5 will never compete for major sport with the likes of the BBC or even ITV, and it, sometimes even Channel 4, because the budgets aren't there. So what we have to be is to try and be smart and find those little bits that other people haven't yep. got to or can't promote the same way. And the other thing we've got to offer, I think, you know, we talked about this earlier, is it, it, we're a free-to-air network. So as a sport, I think, you know, going forward, there was a time, obviously, where everyone just went for the big bucks. I think more and more sports are thinking, okay, we can do that, but what if we took a little, we took 20% less and we made some of it available free to air? Because I think there's a danger, if nobody sees your sport, that that sport's going to suffer in the, in the long term. And if you have a shot window, which free to air can offer you, 
then you can have the best of the both worlds, really. And I, th- I think that's probably what we play on a little bit. We see that with Premier Premier Rugby rugby that we do the Gallagher Premiership Rugby. Fast majority on BT, six live games on on Channel Five, and I think it does wonderfully well for not only Channel Five but also BT Sport because it it you know it's pretty much if you enjoy this, you can watch another hundred games on BT Sport. I was going to say, do you think that uh, the Premier League now having some exposure on uh, terrestrial is in any way damaging to the exclusivity? And, and premium and value that was driven out of exclusivity uh, that was there for pay TV before? Or do you think actually it just helps people keep connected to um, to the game? That's an interesting question. I, mean, I guess, first of all, it's, it's which games are actually available on free-to-air TV. They're probably not your top-tier premiership games. I look at something like the NFL, um, which we also do on Channel 5, yeah. <laughs> with the live game and, and some highlights. And you know, pretty much every NFL game is available. And they seem to make that work. And some of it's free to air and some of it's not. I think there's probably enough games in the Premier League to do that. But the question is, what's that worth to Sky? What's that worth to BT when it's not exclusive? Uh, And it's probably true to say that it's worth less. I don't know if there's anybody out there who will then not subscribe because they can watch Burnley against Leicester. I don't don't know if it's going to work that way. I think, you know, it probably won't have an impact, but it's certainly good for the Premier League for people to see their product. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. So one of the topics that has been so important in sport and the way that it's covered and uh, the dynamics of it has been the issue of, of diversity and racial equality. And I think it was really interesting to get your perspective on that as an executive of of British... Uh, Asian descent working in the world of football and sports journalism which is possibly not known for having the the broadest uh, intake of people <laughs> over the years so I'm, I'd be really interested to hear your experiences of what it was like and has been like and continues <coughs> to be like and what sort of changes you think either are happening or maybe they aren't and things that could change in the future. So when I started, it would have been uh, 1992 <laughs> in the, at the BBC. I think there was myself and one other guy, Rob, who were the only people, who, you know, who were not white British kids. You know, so Rob was Afro Caribbean background, and I was British Asian background, and that was it. And it didn't it didn't really change much for a long time. Um, I think the BBC have made great strides um, while whilst I was there. We had more and more people coming in in radio and television. When I was lucky enough to get sort of to a position where I could do something about it, you know, we had specific work experience schemes set up to help people access the industry. Because what becomes apparent very quickly is that, you know, in, in, in any job, the people that apply for work experience or the people who come in tend to be friends of friends, you know, which is fine. But what we're saying is we're not really making ourselves accessible as an industry to, to a wider group of people. So we set up specific schemes then to do that. And we had a, uh, in fact, an entire social inclusion project called Your Game, which we ran for a number of years. It ran really successfully for six years. We had two receptions at number 10 with a prime minister for it. We, we sent it to Namibia. We did it in Tanzania. We did it in Norway. That opened up to me a little sort of, not a sideline, but an important core part of what we do now, which is still using sport for social good. And that's still part of the business not so long ago, well, actually about six years ago, we helped set up an organisation called the European Football Clubs for Development Network, 
um, which is basically a members organization that links all the charitable arms of various football clubs around Europe so they can work together to exchange information, work better together, access uh, funding together. And that could be anything from walking football to tackling it, questions of dementia, uh, single mothers, anything that's important to people in their particular neighbourhood where that football club exists. And that, that those are clubs basically from PSG, Barcelona, down to Northampton Town. You know, anyone can join that organisation. And and I've continued that work. So I'm a trustee at the, the Taverners as well, the Lord's Taverners, that's the leading cricket charity. And nearly all this stuff is about access and, and, and widening people's horizons. Because we, we, we spoke to so many kids who just don't even know what this industry is, you know, that we work in or what, what the jobs are. I mean, to be honest, I didn't, you know, I didn't. I kind of I kind of stumbled in it through, through, through luck more than judgment. And that hasn't changed much, I don't think, sadly. Um, so access, I think, is the opportunity. When people always talk about diversity and they talk about, you know, well, you know, you'll get there if, 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 if you're good enough. You might, if you've got somebody who's in there who can say, yeah, would you give this kid a week's work experience and you get known and you get known for how hard you work, then, you, then you've got a chance. If you don't, when they're, when they're not formalised, those processes, it's it's so easy to exclude a large part of the country. Um, so I think that's been addressed to a certain extent. Did you ever feel like a bit of a fish out of water? Certainly in football. Yeah. yeah. One, of my, one of my first jobs was working in football is I had to do the post-match interviews for Radio 5. And that meant going to press conferences and other things. And you know, there, there were a couple of times where things were said by managers. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, there were no black or brown faces in the press box. You know, I was the first football reporter at the BBC on a national level in its 70 years, 70 year history. Wow. I was the first person to report on, on sports report, for instance, on, on, in God knows how long. So, yeah, you stood out. But it was quite interesting because it gave you, funnily enough, it gave you a little bit of insight with more of the black players because they would they would see you and they would know who, they knew what you That's were going and they, and also, you know, they, they nearly always stop for an interview because I think they knew what pre- – because they had the same thing, you know, where they were coming up through football and they knew what it was like. So it gave you a little bit of a, an angle with those guys. But, yeah, yeah, it was – there were times where – I mean, I never thought I'm not going to do this or I'm going to I'm going to leave because of it. Well, maybe that's just because of me, the way I am. But, yeah, it was there. And I, I, think, I, I think I sort of ignored it because that was the only way to get through it, really. I just sort of ignored it and thought, well, it's not that. just move on to the next thing. Do you think I mean, things have are changing? Have changed? I mean, if you, I think again, if you just go back to the you know the direct correlation, but that would be what what does Five Live Radio look and sound like now? And it's completely different. It's completely different. And, and there's a point here because diversity isn't just obviously about race, but it, and about gender, but it's about class, and that is probably still the biggest one, and and is overlooked hugely. You know, so the BBC, for instance, could point to a whole raft of presenters who are of a black and Asian background, which is laudable. But I can, you know, I would have a fair bet they're all been educated privately and have had a certain sort of upbringing. So that isn't really, you know, that isn't the limit of diversity. That's just one side of it. And there's still this whole swathe of people who don't know how to access the industry. The industry has to go to them to show them how to access the industry. The other guys have this, you know, I mean, people talk about white privilege, but it's actually, it's a class privilege. And there's all these other guys who've got you know, tremendous potential. You should be dipping into that and using that and, and tapping into it and getting, getting the best people you possibly can. 
I mean, when we ran that that program for the BBC, I asked them when we they used to send me the CVs and I used to get them the same ones again and again and again. And they were like, you know, the cricket captain from Durham University and somebody around the golf society at Exeter University. And that's great. Thought, There's nothing wrong with these kids. They're great, but they're going to they're going to get there. They're going to do it. What I discovered was a whole there was a whole pile of them which they never even sent me. So HR wouldn't send me these ones because I thought they don't have the right qualifications. And I said, well, look, just send me the ones that I don't even get, because those are the ones I really want to look at. And yeah, and most of them, you probably, you know, you haven't filled in the form right. You haven't done this. Well, why would I even, you know, you're not, you haven't shown me anything on this form that tells me you've got anything that, I'm, that would interest me. But quite a few of them did. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You've done this, you've done this. And we said, well, let's bring those guys in for a month. Let's bring that guy in for a month. And of those people, I would say at least 10 of them are now still working in the industry permanently that I don't think would have got in. Yeah. You know, one of them's working quite high up with, with uh, Sky. A couple are working abroad. A couple are working at the BBC. And that was all about access. It wasn't because they were any worse or better than the other guys, but they just never would have got in. They would, never, they would have been in that pile in HR that didn't move. So I think for me, diversity is moving towards in the right direction, of course. But, you know, as, as nearly all of us who are in the industry, just get, we've been saying this for 20 years, you know, and I've done, I've done well in this industry where I am in, you know, the position I am. And, you know, there are only so many heads of sports for, for networks, and especially national networks. But I look around and say, where's everyone else? You know, and that's the thing that worries me. You know, I hesitate to use the word class ceiling, but where is everyone else? You know, and why isn't that? Why isn't that happening? I mean, I thought, you know, I'm saying it's a BBC, but you know, you kind of you get frustrated and say, surely there must be more people who are now raising to go into a senior management level, because that is the one thing. You know, I still go into every meeting that I go into at a senior level with sport and stuff, and it's me. You know, I, we had a meeting with the DCMS just before lockdown, where they called in all all the major broadcasters, all the major sports. And we thought sport might close down for a week or three weeks. You know, this was like way, be- way before the summer. So it would have been, you know, late Feb, right? I remember sitting in the room, looking around, and there must have been, I don't know, 80 people in the room. And there's me. And, I, and that's the same for the last 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting insights. So what I usually do at this point is to ask my guests for a lockdown film album, <laughs> as, we, as we used to call them box set and book that uh, if they f- if they found themselves in a global pandemic and a little bit isolated what Jesus would they uh, what would they like to have to keep them company this is a great book so it's called the Un- unforgivable blackness the rise and fall of jack johnson by jeffrey c ward which is about the first black heavyweight world title holder in the states and the story's amazing it's just amazing i won't spoil it for anyone who, who hasn't read it Music-wise, I'm gonna have to look at. I'm gonna have to look at. I tell you what, I, I, I do like the Flaming Lips. And a new album called American Head, which I managed to buy on vinyl on, on multicolored vinyl, which does your head in as it's spinning around. The whole thing. But, okay, but is 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 great. I really enjoy. I really like our, that. Our most left-field selection so far, I would say. Yeah, well, you know, music was always, you know, that time music was all my kind of thing anyway. So that that was, I, I still do. Luckily, I've got friends who work in the music industry and elsewhere. Uh, who keep me informed. I don't have the time or effort to do that. TV-wise, uh, early that? on in lockdown, we started to watch The Last Kingdom. That was a good lockdown thing because there was about eight series. So that was 
God, that feels like a lifetime ago. But yeah, yeah, we watched a lot. And in the end, we ended up talking like them. We were watching too much of it. So we were sort of, uh, but that was good. And the oh, film. Wow. And one yeah. film that you would have. Oh, good films. I could watch Goodfellas again and again and again without any problem at all. I well, definitely watch Goodfellas, yeah. A good choice. Okay, well, Kaj, Sol, thank you so much for joining the pod. It's been fascinating. Oh, uh, thanks, Danny. And, um, and good luck over the, uh, the coming few weeks. Yeah, let's hope we all get out and see some real sport. Which would, you know, quite frankly, I'll, I would probably even watch Notts County right now. So uh, <laughs> the ultimate, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not Derby County, but Notts County, yes. 